Our passage this morning is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then also, then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christine. You may be seated. You're already doing that. My name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here at Grace, and I'm so thankful you've all joined us this morning, either in person or uh, online. You got everything, John? There you go, bud. It's abs, by the way. Anybody? Okay, a little long time between the jokes, but it's all right. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the scripture passage uh, we have for us this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for sending us your word. Thank you for sending us the king. Thank you for sending the king to Jerusalem to be praised by the crowds, but not only that, to be crucified a number of days later. And I pray this morning that as we worship not a dead or crucified Lord, we worship a resurrected Lord who has sent the power of the Holy Spirit to us, that we would uh, be marinating in that power this morning. I pray that your Spirit would be active in our hearts, that we would be convicted, we would be challenged, we would be encouraged, that the gospel would shower down on us through this passage of Scripture this morning. I pray that you would have me move out of the way of that, and that we all would learn together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, this is the last sermon in the series, The Power, The Message and the Power of the Messiah. Uh, we have, uh, we're going to be in Matthew three more times in the coming weeks, so Good Friday, Easter, and then 
uh, the first sermon of the next series, which is called Broken and Beautiful. And Steve and I will be sharing that series together. It's a series about the mission and the values of our church. So it's really about who we are, what we're here to do, uh, what, we, what we are the non-essentials of what we want to be as a congregation are. And so um, uh, it's been a great time. I've enjoyed uh, learning and teaching this series, and hopefully you have too, and hopefully we'll uh, enjoy as we finish up Matthew here in the next week or so. Um, so we have a challenge this morning, and that challenge is that for many of us, this passage is familiar. It's familiar. We've heard it read. We know the story. This passage is actually part of our pop culture, sheep and goats. Um, and, and the challenge with a familiar culture is that as we read our Bibles, and we study our Bibles, and we hear maybe a sermon many years ago, or we do a particular study, um, we tend, at least I know I do, we tend to settle in on a meaning and then remain motionless. So whatever this passage meant when it made sense the first time is what it means forever. Well, Scripture is living and active. And the Spirit, what it does is as we read as Christians, the Spirit helps us gain new insight from old passages. And so this morning, uh, that's our challenge. We've got to maybe think about things in a different way or think about things in a new way. Allow the Spirit to say something new. John Stott uh, describes kind of the the two ends of the spectrum of settling in on a meaning on this passage in this way. He says, uh, people who reduce the gospel to social action love this passage because it seems to have no theology in it and a great deal of care for the poor and needy. On the other end of the spectrum, he says, people with a strong Reformed theology have problems with it. It looks dangerously like justification by works. So there, we're probably all of us somewhere in between those two extremes. And my hope this morning... Uh, we're going to go there. We're going to look at this passage. My hope is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and its power, will give us all a new perspective on something old. On something old. Um, as I studied this week, I feel like this passage not only gives us a clear proclamation of who Jesus is, it gives us a clear proclamation of His saving grace. And so, uh, let's go there into the passage, but first, let's talk about context. Always context. Where we left off last week, Jesus had just given the parable of the wedding feast. Remember this? Uh, the, he tells the story of a king who's having a wedding feast for his son. He gathered in. He's trying to gather in his people who had said, yes, we'll be there. And they said, we're too busy. No thanks. And so what he did is he destroyed their city. And then he came in and he, he said to his servants, let's get anybody who will come. And so he, he ends up uh, telling this story where there's a man who doesn't wear the wedding clothes. We learned uh, that, that that man uh, just rejected uh, what was offered to him and the clothes offered by the king. And so from there, Jesus moves directly into this passage called the seven woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. Now this, is, this passage is more than just a sick burn, right? He's not just getting at, goading the Pharisees. No, he is reading them their souls. And it just so happens to be something that's really not, not that great. And so what, he, what Jesus is doing in that moment is condemning the religion of the day. He's saying, what you believe, what you say, it's not true about you, and it's not true about God. From there, Jesus begins what many refer to as the Olivet Discourse, and what Jesus is doing in this discourse, he, he's describing simultaneously two events. He's describing the destruction of Jerusalem, as well as how the things will go at the end of time. And so, Jesus is almost using Jerusalem and how things will go when Titus marches in and and, and raises it to the ground, burns the city down 
as, as a foreshadowing of what things will be like in the end of time. So what we have here, Jesus really, through parables, prophecies, and teachings, what he's becoming in kind of our language is this apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophet, okay? Um, the end is near is kind of his message here in these last few chapters. What's his point in all that? Is he just ranting and raving? No, his point is, listen, everyone who, who's heard me teach as my, as my teaching comes to an end, he's got this urgency, and that urgent message is you need to invest in the kingdom. You need to prepare for the coming of Jesus. My coming again. That's what's most important. And so this passage is on that same vein. It's an urgent message for the hearers about who Jesus is and what he's calling them to do. Now let's make something clear. This passage is not a parable. This passage is not a parable. This is a prophetic vision of the future. Now there are kind of parable type aspects. He uses the illustration of sheep and goats, but that's as far as it goes. The rest of it is a description of something that will actually happen in history. Jesus will sit on his throne and he will judge all people. This will happen. Craig Blomberg describes it this way. This passage here is a public, this, this passage is describing a public, universal, even cosmic demonstration of God's justice and mercy and is displayed for all to see. And in this prophecy that Jesus is making about himself, it reveals who he is and it reveals what criteria he will judge by. So let's take a look at the passage. Let's start there with who is Jesus. First of all, this passage reveals the power of the Son of Man. The Son of Man refers to Jesus. Jesus oftentimes speaks about himself in the third person using this Son of Man terminology. There's a whole thing for the reason that he used this. It was a, a lesser-known term for the Messiah, and he was trying to shed baggage with the term Messiah or anointed one, and he went with Son of Man so he could define it the way it should have been defined from the beginning. But he is talking here of himself in verse 31 when he says... When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Let's take this one phrase at a time. First of all, when the Son of Man comes in glory, Jesus first came in lowliness. I think the last verse of the song for the offertory was about that moment at Christmas when Jesus came. <coughs> Excuse me. The pollen is everywhere. Um, Jesus came to earth. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was the Word. And what happened? He emptied Himself. The great kenosis, it's called, to become man, to become a human in order to what? Save us. So He came the first time, His first advent, in lowliness. His second advent will not be the same. It will not be the same. He'll come in glory. He'll come in glory. He'll come not just in glory, He'll come with all the angels. Think about <clears throat> what the, the whole existence of angels is for. Angels are meant to worship and attend to God at His throne. That's their whole purpose. That's their whole purpose. They serve and worship God. And so Jesus is saying, when I come again in my glory, not only that, all the angels will be with me. And He will, of course, sit on His glorious throne. I was thinking about human throne rooms. And if you think about human throne rooms, just imagine one in your mind. Generally, the throne is kind of the centerpiece of that room. It's decorated. It's adorned. But if you look at Revelation 4, John, the Apostle John is describing the throne room 
of Jesus, and the throne is kind of a, a side note. Jesus Himself is sitting on His own glory. And, and as you look at Revelation 4, who is the centerpiece of this scene? It's Jesus Christ Himself. He shines like an amethyst. He glows like light you've never seen. And so here Jesus is describing His power. He will come in glory with all the angels and He will sit on His glorious throne. Verse 32, the end of 33, describes another aspect of Jesus' power. The power of His authority. Look again at verse 32 with me. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Stop there. Jews, Gentiles, Christians, non-Christians, there's no one excluded from this group of people. Everyone who's ever existed that will exist until this moment will stand before Jesus on His throne. For what purpose? For what purpose? To be judged. To be judged. Everyone will stand before Jesus and give an account. Gulp. <laughs> it's okay to gulp at that. That's a, that's a healthy reaction to that truth. Every single one of us will stand before Christ and give an account. But there's more to it. It says here in verse 32, at the end of verse 32 and into 33, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I have a challenge for the church. After church is over and you get in the car, get your cell phones out, and I want you to record everyone in the car saying, shepherd separates the sheep ten times fast, and the best ones post to our Facebook. How about that? Let's do that. I, I was practicing reading all week, and I could not get that out. It was rough. Uh, so ten times fast, shepherd separates the sheep. It's really hard. Um, so listen, he's separating. He is not just gathering and saying, all good or all bad, Jesus Himself, the glorious King, is saying, you all are sheep. You guys sat on the right side, literally and figuratively this morning. You all are goats. So sorry, okay? That's how it's going to go. My kids are on this side, just so you know. Um, sheep and goats. He's saying, you all are one thing. You all are another thing. He has the authority to do that. To say, what is a sheep and what is a goat? This is the kind of the one illustration he uses in the passage. If you're wondering what this is about, shepherds would often uh, have goats and sheep in the same herd, but he would separate them for different reasons. For one reason, uh, sheep don't need as much warmth as goats do. And another reason is sheep eat a little more sparingly than goats do. So goats would clear an entire field just by themselves, whereas sheep don't need as much. And so he would separate them to make sure they're feeding properly. But Jesus is using this kind of modern day uh, illustration for these Israelites to, to show them as a shepherd who owns the sheep and owns the goats, separates them, so I will do with all people. What is Jesus, before we get to the sheep and goats, what is Jesus really doing here? If you look at these characteristics, sitting on the throne, being attended to by the angels, judging what is right and what is wrong, these, if you look at the Old Testament, these are characteristics that are given to one being, and who is that? God. So what is Jesus saying about Himself in these first few verses? I am God. I am God. Now, we go to C.S. Lewis here and his simple apologetic uh, um, idea, illustration, and it's called Lord, Lunatic, or Liar. In this moment, what is Jesus saying about Himself? I am a divine being in human flesh. I am the glorious king of everything. I will judge 
all people. And, and what C.S. Lewis says is either Jesus is Lord, this is true, or he's a lunatic, he's insane, or he's got a really neat lie going here, a lie he doesn't benefit from at all, a lie that sends him to his death. And for a crazy person, he sure has a lot of people following him, again, with no benefit to themselves. So Jesus is attributing to himself a divine nature. He is God. We now get to sheep and goats. The passage moves there. In verse 33, it says, He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Um, this is where I began to uh, have to challenge uh, what this passage was about or what I thought it was about. I think many of us have heard this passage and we've heard it preached that here's some good things the sheep do and, and this is the response that Jesus gives them for those good things. But, but here's the reality. This is not about behaviors that cause salvation. This passage is not about behaviors that cause salvation. What Jesus is about to describe to the sheep first and the goats second is the fruit of their hearts. The evidence to the sheep. The evidence of their salvation He's about to proclaim to them. To the goats, He's about to proclaim to them the evidence of the curse that's upon them. So these behaviors are not causal. They're evidence of their salvation. And so look at this, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, look at the tense of these descriptions. Come you who are blessed, past tense, by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you, past tense, from when? The foundation of the world. This first phrase, come you who are blessed by my Father. Remember back to the Beatitudes many months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the summary of that? You are blessed already when you acknowledge your sinful bankruptcy because the kingdom is yours already. That's what he's saying here. You are blessed already by our Father. He has prepared what? An inheritance for you. Inheritance is a gift, not a wage. We don't earn inheritance. It's given. And this inheritance was prepared from when? The foundation of the world. Church, hear this this morning. The church is not plan B. What God is unfolding right now has been His plan to unfold from the beginning of time. What we're talking about here is a topic that can be controversial. It's called predestination. Predestination. What is predestination? It's the unconditional election of God's people before time that they might be saved. Unconditional meaning it's not a characteristic that we have in us that God's like, wow, impressive, ransom, you're in. Or a skill that we have, he said, wow, okay, you've earned it. Or an attribute that we have that God has said, yes, and notice someone else. No, God chose us simply for his son. We talked about this in the wedding feast. We're chosen for the son, we're saved for the son. Listen to Ephesians 1.11 describe this very truth. And listen to the same kind of language that Paul is using. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, past tense, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What's outside God's control according to Ephesians 1? Absolutely nothing, including salvation. Now, church, let me talk to us for a moment. I was convicted this week that we are guilty of taking up this topic of predestination with a sterile, unfeeling, emotional heart. Yes, it's true. You're, you're elected or you're not. Get over it. 
But I, I was reading Romans 9. I was in the CBR this week. And in Romans 9, Paul, before he gets to the, the election of the Gentiles and, and the rejection of the Jews and, and the, the, the intermixing, intermixing there, he is brokenhearted in Romans 9. He wishes what? He could exchange himself. I wish my soul could go to hell, he says, so that my brothers could go to heaven. If that's not emotion, I don't know what is. And so let's be careful that we don't handle these truths of Scripture with a bat <laughs> instead of a winsome emotional thing. Think about this. There are, all of us have someone that we know, that we love, that is likely not elect. That should break our heart, and that should inform how we talk about this topic. It's not simple and done. It's hard for us as humans. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know who is elect and who is not. And so we should feel for those who are not. And of course, an unreasonable reaction, but a common one to this truth of Scripture is not fair. Okay, Let's just talk about that. Predestination God chose before anybody? Not fair. Well, let me talk about fairness for a moment. The Oxford Dictionary describes fairness as impartial and just treatment or behavior without favoritism or discrimination. I want to tell you something about myself. My fairness isn't fair. My fairness, my idea of fairness is so skewed. All of our ideas of fairness are skewed. Generally, how is it skewed? It's self-centered. Fairness is what benefits who? Me, or the people I know, or the people that I love. And so I want us to understand that we can't judge our balance of fairness versus unfairness. We can't. We shouldn't. Listen to Proverbs 16 about God. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in His bag are His work. When it comes to these difficult truths of Scripture, what must we do? We must trust the balance of God's fairness. Because who is more fair than God? No one. Not me, <laughs> that's for sure. And so here, what we have in, in view from verse 34 is God's elect. And it's not an act of unfairness, it's an act of God's mercy. You see, no one, no one, not even myself, we can't save ourselves. Ephesians goes on to say, salvation it comes from the Lord because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so what, what must God do? Because we can't approach Him, He must act against our natural will. He must revive our hearts and bring us to Himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And He saves because, not because He's harsh, but because He loves. And He's rich in mercy. By grace we are saved. So let's look at these works. Let's get there. Verses 35 and 36. Again, these are not things that the sheep have done to earn salvation. These works that we're about to read are the fruit of the grace in their life. They're not earning their way. These are outpourings of the Holy Spirit. I was looking for, I was looking through the scriptures this week at this idea that, that our good works are not our own. So what, we, what do we like to do? We like to take credit for our good. Ah, oh, wow, look what I did. That's pretty amazing. And what do we else like to do? We like to kind of like push away the blame for the bad things we do. But really the reality of it all is it's the opposite. Look at Ezekiel. And I love when we find the gospel in the Old Testament. Listen to this from Ezekiel. And look who is taking the action in this verse. Ezekiel 36. I will, God speaking, sprinkle clean water on you, his people, 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And why does he do this? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Any good that we do comes from the power of the Spirit within us. If you want to take credit for something, (laughs) take credit for your sin. When I do me and you do you, what do we do? Sin. But when the Spirit is active, what happens? We do good, and it belongs to Christ. The glory belongs to Him and the power of the Spirit. So look at these things. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was, in, I was naked and you clothed me. Sick, you visited. I was in prison and you came to me. What is he describing? He's showing the sheep the evidence of their salvation. And the evidence of their salvation is that in all these scenarios, they helped Jesus himself when he was in a time of need. One scholar says that a revived heart or the life of a sheep, a sheep is someone with a revived heart, is busy with helping the needy. Now, we, we think in general that this, this probably um, refers to the general needy population, but let's bookmark our brains there. We'll come back to that. But look at the motivations. Look at the response of the sheep. They're unaware of how they did this to Jesus. They say, uh, then they will, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you? And they go through the whole list. When did we see you hungry or naked or in prison or sick? They're, they're confused. We, we did these things. We don't remember doing it for you. And then Jesus reveals the recipients. He said in verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What makes this passage interesting is this phrase, my brothers, almost always refers to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Refers to the people following Christ. Jesus is, he identifies himself with his his children, his brothers. Those who follow him. Those who have believed in his word. So if we fly over this passage and we go with the interpretation of this is about helping the needy, it's not accurate enough. It's not accurate enough. It can't just be the general needy person. There is some brotherly connection here, but here's the reality. This passage, we could get lost in those details. This passage isn't necessarily about this, and we'll get to what it's about in a little bit, but here's a summary of what just happened between the Son of Man and the sheep. Here's what happened. The sheep, they were predestined before the foundation of the world to receive an inheritance from God. They were blessed by that. They were chosen for a merciful, undeserved inheritance. And here they are being shown the proof or the evidence of their own salvation. So what are these things? They're the the fruit of grace that has been shown to them. And it's the fruit of the grace that saved them. That's what's happening here. Jesus is declaring to them, here's the fruit of the salvation that you've been given. Of course, We have some unpleasantness here. He also goes to the goats. Left side of the church, your time's coming, all right? And so if the sheep are being told, shown the fruit of the blessing of grace that they have received, what are the goats being shown? They're being shown the fruit of the curse of sin. 
still hangs over them, that still applies to them. So let's go here for a second. What is the curse of sin? What is the curse of sin? Look at verse 41. He says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This idea of the curse of sin comes from the Old Testament. So we're going to quickly rewind to Deuteronomy 27. This is Moses speaking to the second generation of Jews in the wilderness, and he's reminding them about the covenant that God made, reminding them about the commandments. And he says this, Cursed be anyone, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So, quick lesson. In the Old Covenant, there was physical curses and physical blessings attached to obeying or disobeying. If you obeyed, God blessed the nation of Israel. If you disobeyed, He cursed the nation of Israel. Those things in the New Testament have transformed into spiritual curses and blessings. Now, reminding ourselves, what is one of the main functions of the law? It's not so that we would obey it. It's sort of that. But one of the main functions of the law is to remind us that we can't. To remind us that we can't. So God gave us the law in order to show us you can't do it on your own. You need me. You need God. And so as we look at this truth as it's presented in the New Testament, we go to Galatians. And here's what Paul has to say. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Listen. In the Old Testament, God said, obey for blessing, disobey, curse. In the New Testament, God says, no one can obey. Therefore, what? Everyone is under the curse. That's bad news. That is bad news, but there is a way out. And it's not through obedience. It's through believing in Jesus Christ. Because what? He redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. You hear it? So, the the goats, they're under the curse. What's the only way to remain under the curse? To not come to Jesus Christ. And so the actions that Jesus, the Son of Man, presents to them are the fruit of their unchanged hearts. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty and no drink. Stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked and sick and in prison, and you do not help me in any of those scenarios. They did not have mercy on the brothers of Christ. They did not have mercy on Christ Himself, is what He's saying. You didn't have mercy on me. You didn't accept me. You didn't help me when I needed it. Their motivations are laid bare. If you look at verse 44, I find this fascinating. Look at their response. Again, a familiar passage. We can glaze over this, but look at what's actually happening here. They will answer saying, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Read this through a lens of self-justification and blame. (laughs) If we had seen you, Lord, of course we would have done it, but you didn't tell us where you were. We were looking for you. We would have done it for you, of course, but we didn't, we didn't see you. How could we have done it for you if we didn't see you? You see how this is measurable piety? You see how this is thinking that if I had just seen Jesus and, and known it was him, of course I would have done it to be saved. What's their motivation? To, to justify themselves, to earn their salvation. This is what the Pharisees had been doing for, for, for generations. Okay, what does God want us to do? I will do that while I stomp all over those who are faithful. Stomp all over the needy. This is a pharisaical way of living. Doing the minimum efforts to earn salvation. Jesus, if I had known it was you, I 
And then, of course, Jesus says the same thing he says to the sheep. I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You had that opportunity. You didn't respond. You didn't come to me. What's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? At the end, again, at the end of his ministry, Jesus is giving urgent, an urgent message. He's about to be crucified. And what is he teaching? I am the way to salvation. I am the way to salvation. There's no other way. Come to Jesus. He's drawing a clear line between what is religion and what is salvation. And he's saying, the way it's been done is not the way you can do it. It only comes through me. And so when he says in verse 46, and these will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life, he's not trying to use scare tactics. He's using truth tactics. He's saying there is a real place of eternal punishment, and there's a real place of eternal life, and I am the way to it. That's his message to everyone who will listen. Then, in, in that time of history and now through his scriptures, it's an urgent call to the only Savior ever known to man. So, there are some questions I think we might be asking. Some of you may be asking, listen, this is a little scary. How can I be a sheep? I don't want to be a goat. How can I be a sheep? How can I, how can I be on the right side and not the left side? Well, first of all, sit on this side of the church if you haven't learned that by now. Listen, there's one answer. Respond to the message of Christ. Respond to the message of Christ. D.A. Carson, as he looks at that the sheep, he sees there that, that, that the brothers of Christ are going out as missionaries, or not as missionaries, but just as the disciples of Christ, bringing the message of Christ. And I'm bringing as a disciple the message of Christ to you more, this morning. And what he says is, when you respond to us as we pour ourselves out, that response is to Jesus alone. So this morning, what is the message of Christ? I've sprinkled it throughout this whole message, but here it is in summary. We are all sinners. We're all under the curse of the law. Why? We can't be good enough for God. I'm not good enough for God. I can't be good enough to earn my way. And so, because I'm under the curse, I cannot save myself. Left to my own devices, I'm just a goat. And so Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, came as a human in a lowly status. He came, He lived, He died, He rose again in order to what? Take the cross that I deserved. Cursed is He who hangs on a tree, is what Galatians 3.13 ends with. And who did that? Jesus did that. Why? To, to be a good example? No, to save our souls. Because we can't do it ourselves. To provide us with the blessing of of God's mercy. So how can you be a sheep? Respond to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Now church, as we think about this passage and we recalibrate our view of this passage, I want to say a few things. First of all, the point of this passage is not navel-gazing. right? What should I do? What should I do? What, should, what is this passage calling me to do? What about me? What about me? Am I doing enough? Have I done enough? Am I serving the poor enough? That's not, the, that's not it. We've got to let go of that. That's not what this passage is about. Nor is this passage a general command to, to, to serve the needy. Now, let's make no mistake. 
somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, there's a lot of places where Jesus and, and, and the Bible says, serve the poor. That's something we should be doing. And, and when you do it, it's not because, wow, I'm great. It's because the Spirit is working in your heart. It's a good thing. But that's not what this passage is about, and that's okay. This passage is about the fully revealed power of Christ's authority and his kingship. So the wrong question to ask of this passage is, what should I be doing? That's not the right question. The right question to ask of this passage is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And here's the answer. And I think this is an amazing end to this sermon series that I didn't plan. That the power and the message of the Messiah, here's the answer we get from Matthew 25. Jesus is the glorious king of everything, and he deserves our full allegiance. Jesus is the glorious king of what? Everything. And because of that, he deserves every single person who's ever been born that will be born, he deserves our full allegiance. That's what this passage is about. And when we look at the proper answer to the proper question, I think of this passage, it gives, it gives us something. It gives us several things. First of all, it gives us depth and seriousness to the commands of Jesus Christ. If he is the king, the glorious king of everything, what of his word should we obey? <laughs> all of them. It gives depth and seriousness to what he's asking us to do because he's not just a good teacher. He's the glorious king of everything and he deserves our full allegiance. This truth gives an almost unbelievable value to his death. Do you, you see this? He's the glorious king of everything. He deserves my full allegiance and he died for me? A wretched sinner? This truth gives the gospel value. It gives a perspective on our choices that we make every day. We don't live for ourselves. We, we are accountable to someone. And that someone just so happens to be the glorious king of everything who deserves our full allegiance. Right? And on this Palm Sunday, think about this. As the crowds yelled, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They had no idea how right they were. No idea. They had no idea. I was waiting for one more amen, but okay. They had no idea. Well, from the baby, not you, John. Thanks. And it also brings a darker tint to the idea that these same crowds who said, Hosanna in the highest, a few days later yell what? Crucify him. It's dark. They're crucifying the, the glorious king of everything who deserve their full allegiance. And one day they're throwing their palms and their coats down, and the next day they're picking Barabbas instead of him. As we enter Holy Week, which it dawned on me this morning, this is Holy Week, okay. Um, my prayer as your pastor and your friend is this, that the culmination of these sermons in Matthew will, will grab our hearts, mine too. Because here's some realities. We're all in different places in our walk with Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. None of us are in the same exact place because relationships are individual with God through Jesus. And we're all in slightly different places. And that makes us diverse and beautiful, right? But here's the thing. We all, at some level, need more faithfulness to Christ. We all need to give more allegiance to Christ. 
And we all need change in our life. We all need it. No one here has arrived. Not even close. And so this Easter, thinking about a practical application, here's what I want to ask us to do. I don't want us to shoot for the moon. And what I mean by that is, let's not say, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm total at 180, turn around, I'm going to give all of my allegiance to Christ. I want us to simply ask, what's the next small step that the glorious king of everything, who deserves your full allegiance, is asking you, me, to do? What's the next thing? Just the next little thing. Maybe it's knowing your Bible more. I need to know mine better. I need to know mine better. So maybe a good step that he's asking you to do is to get a community Bible reading journal and, and to ask some friends to read it with you. That, that's a simple, small thing that can be done. And, and it's, a, it's a step towards allegiance in Christ. And it comes from a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Maybe he wants you to depend more on him. That can start with prayer. Maybe you get up earlier, you take your lunch break, and you spend that time praying. You ask someone, again, to pray with you. We're, we're a church together. We're a family together. Now, now here's, here's something real. Maybe this passage is calling you. Maybe Jesus is saying, I do want you to care more for the needy than you do right now. That's not something you do to impress Him. It's something that comes out of a heart of flesh. And if the, if the Spirit, if God is calling you to that, the King, the glorious King of everything is calling you to that, there are simple things you can do. And so this Easter, let's just take a tiny step. Take a tiny step towards our Father, towards our Lord, in the direction that He's calling us. Listen, your elders are here to walk this walk with you. They have not arrived either. Elders, can I get an amen? Amen. There's none here. Don't worry about it. They don't come to church. Just kidding. Um, they're too holy to say amen. No, um, we're here to walk with you as brothers. That's why we're here. It's not a promotion. It's a demotion. We're here to serve and help. We have a women's ministry and a men's ministry that it's not to, to, to do fellowship. It's actually for discipleship, to walk together. That's why it's here. We're not here to look better. We're not here to be better. We're here to follow Jesus Christ. The glorious King of everything who deserves our full allegiance. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that the things I've said today would not be a distraction to anyone, but they would, those words be carried by the Spirit into our hearts, and that I pray that everyone here has heard, everyone at home has heard what you need them to hear. Here in this time of your life, you are urgently calling people to yourself. Urgently. And this morning, in our world today, that urgent call has never stopped. You call urgently this morning for your children to wake up, to come to spiritual life and respond to the glorious King of everything who's not just shouting out commands, who's not just telling us what to do, not saying, be like me. This glorious King came to this earth and He, he submitted. He submitted even unto death on a cross. Why? to save our wretched souls, even while we were sinners. 
Christ died for us. The glorious King of everything who deserves our full allegiance gave everything to save His people, His brothers, His sisters. I pray that that Gospel would leak into our hearts this morning whether we are not a Christian or we are a Christian, that we would be renewed this morning, that those who do not know You would respond They would realize, oh my goodness, I am a sheep this morning. That I have been blessed, called to an inheritance that I didn't earn. It's it's a free gift. I pray this morning that those of us who know we're sheep would be encouraged, reminded that we are not saved by how we feel. We're saved by the truth of Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we approach Your table. Make it a time of nourishing encouragement and repentance. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.